Father, we pray that um, you will answer the prayer that we have just sung. Through your word and through your spirit, help us to allow you to have your way in us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Some of you who are uh, college basketball fans uh, recognize uh, names of Dick Vitale and Bill Raftery and Steve Lavin and other people, former basketball coaches or players who, who uh, do color commentary in a lot of the games. They are all, in one degree or another, forerunners of, what, I, in my opinion, one of the best broadcasters, Al McGuire. Al McGuire was a... Um, Colorful, colorful guy. He was born to, to uh, poor Irish immigrants in New York City. And uh, he never quite lost the, uh, the quintessential Queen's accent and demeanor that you, you might picture in your mind when you think of someone from uh, that, that, that background. He uh, was played at St. John's University, was a star there, went to the NBA for a while, but really made his name in coaching. As an assistant at Dartmouth College, and then he was a head coach at uh, Belmont Abbey University, and then eventually to Marquette University in Milwaukee. And it was at Marquette that he, he really made his name for himself in the ranks of college basketball. He was a great coach. He built up that program and uh, until eventually he was there 13 years. And in his very last game coaching, his team won the national championship. From that point on, he went into broadcasting and was a broadcaster for many years and invented many of the uh, common phrases that you might hear if you watch a basketball game. He, talked to, he was the one that started talking about points in the paint. And he was, I think, the first one to call the NCAA tournament the big dance. And, you know, he had this, this kind of colorful demeanor about him. One of my favorite Al McGuire stories is, takes place, took place when his son was playing for him at Marquette. His son, Ali, was a starter on the team. Not everybody on the team was thrilled about the fact that Al McGuire's son started. One of the kids, the kid who wasn't starting because Al McGuire's son was, came to the coach one day and said, Coach, I want to talk to you about something. He said, all right, what do you want to talk about? He said, well, you know, I think I'm just as good a player as your son. And McGuire said, yeah, I think you're probably right. He said, well, then, Coach, how come he gets to start and I don't? And McGuire said, because he's my son. (laughs) <laughs> you know, if you want to start, if you want to play, you've got to be better than my son. It's not good enough just to be as good as my son. And you know, every time I read that, I think that's kind of what I think family ought to be like. You know, there ought to be something special and unique and, and blessed about being family. And I know that's not always the case, but it ought to be. I think that's the way God intended it to be. That every person would be born into a family that makes them feel special and loved and significant and wanted. That was God's design for creating family. But as we all know, it doesn't always turn out that way. Some of you might argue that it never turns out that way. Maybe you're right. I mean, after all, every family has certain certain level of, of dysfunction to it. Some dysfunction is more evident. Some is far more severely damaging. 
Every family, because no family is perfect, has some level of dysfunction. Every child has moments of wondering if they're loved. No matter how young or old we happen to be, every child experiences moments when our parents disappoint us, when our parents embarrass us, when our parents fall short of what we hope they will be for us. And some of that is painful, but not devastating. But for some, painful and devastating don't even begin to describe what they think of when they think of family. But no matter what your experience with family, there is something in us that wants to have family connections. We want to feel close to someone. We want to be accepted by significant people. We want to be encouraged. We want a safe haven where we can go and feel secure when all of life is falling in around us. We want to be loved. And our hearts yearn for family, for relationship that meets those needs. But our families keep falling short because no family is perfect. And into this imperfect reality of our family comes the family of God. And God's invitation to find something in Him, a family that we simply cannot find here on earth. But you know, even the family of God is a difficult concept for us to grasp. And so here is Jesus sitting around in this home, teaching the people when he hears that his mother and brothers are outside and they want to speak to him. And in just a few sentences, he gives us a lesson about family. He says, who are my, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And in essence, I think he's asking, what does it mean? What does it look like to be a part of my family? And Jesus isn't rejecting his family. I think he's simply clarifying what his family looks like. Because so many people have a false idea of what it means to be a part of God's family. You know, our world is about connections. Who you know. What's your heritage? What school did you attend? If you know the right people, you can jump up to the head of the line. If you're famous enough or wealthy enough, you can get the best table. In our world, the rich and the powerful and the connected get the special treatment. But Jesus says that's not the way things are done in his family. In fact, he's saying your connections really don't mean anything. Your accomplishments aren't impressive to God. Your religious heritage won't impress God. It all comes down to obedience to the will of God. For many of us, the minute you talk about the will of God, we get a, a picture in our minds that I think, I don't think we acknowledge this, but I think it's there, that it's sort of like a, a cosmic roulette wheel. The thing's spinning around with the ball and we're hoping, oh, I hope I make the right choice. And, and we, we, we pray, I hope I get this right or should I do this or that or should I go that direction or this direction? Should I stay here or go there? You know, we ask all these questions 
And, and the underlying assumption, it seems to me often, is it's awfully difficult to know what God wants us to do. And I think we make the will of God for our lives far more difficult than it really is. I mean, if the one prerequisite to connect to family connection to Jesus is doing the will of God, then surely God is not going to make that one prerequisite so difficult for us to discern. Now, that's not to say that we don't struggle to know God's will, but that's because of our human limitations. It's because of our human limitations. It's because of the fact that we have miswirings from all kinds of experiences and our own sin that we struggle to know God's will. And God is interested in every one of our life decisions. God wants us to make life decisions that will take us in the right direction. But I think God is primarily concerned about the attitude and the spirit by which we make those decisions. Sometimes we, we don't sense a clear direction from God. At least we're not seeing it, picking up on it. And, and we wonder, what should we do? I remember years ago when we lived in Wisconsin, a couple came to me in the church, came to me to consult with me about uh, a big decision they were going to needed to make. They were trying to decide whether they should purchase another business that was located in another community. And the implications of that decision were huge because it would put them, it would, it would certainly push them financially and it would mean that they would uproot their family and move to this other community. And as they were telling me what was going on, I got the feeling they wanted me to tell them what to do. I was not going to tell them what to do. I didn't want this thing blowing up in their faces and coming back and blaming me for that. But we talked through it, and I said to them, well, I think there are some things that you need to make sure you've done. Have you, you know, have you prayed uh, seriously about this and, and you know, for some time? Have you consulted people you respect and trust? And have you weighed the various things that, that will be certainly happen by one decision or the other? And then you have to reach the point where you say, this is what my gut is telling me, and unless God stops it, that's what I'm going to do. But I also said to them, now, don't base the rightness or the wrongness of your decision on the immediate outcome. If you decide to buy the business and go down there and it all falls apart. Or if you decide to stay here and everything falls apart. Don't assume that you made the wrong decision. Maybe. Maybe God has some things he wants to do in your life. That can only happen if some things fall apart. Maybe God has something in mind for you that you can't even see now. And all you can do is, is pray and talk and think and then decide. And doing the will of God, following the will of God, can sometimes be a struggle for us in the specific things of our lives. We want to do what God wants us to do. We want to be obedient. We want to walk on the path that he's laid out before us. And sometimes it's difficult to discern what that is. And, and we get nervous about missing God's will. We worry that we're going to make the wrong decision and then our lives are going to disintegrate. I, I think we, we worry ourselves to death. 
If God, what, if God wants us to do something and we're open to God, he'll tell us. He'll lead us. It's not something God is hiding from us. But I have come to the conclusion that the most profound means of discerning the specific will of God for us as individuals is to commit ourselves to the general universal will of God. And the, and the general will of God is not all that complicated. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. God gives us guidelines for what, what his people do, what people in his family, how they act. God's people love. They love him. They love others. God's people desire to be holy. God's people surrender to him. God's people live with a childlike faith. God's people act justly and love mercy and walk humbly before him. Doing the will of God is first and foremost an attitude of obedience to God. Paul writes to the Philippians, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The family of God is not a checklist of do's and don'ts. It's an attitude of submission to God's will. Doing God's will is at the heart of the third petition of the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is a prayer that, that, that the purposes of God and the plans of God will rule in this earth. And a prayer that the purposes and plans of God will rule in our lives. And it's an attitude of complete and total submission. Lord, your will be done, not mine, is the implication of that prayer. Of course, it's not enough just to say we obey. Obedience is always proven by our actions. Jesus doesn't say that that his family are those who are interested in doing God's will. Or or those who are hoping to do God's will or, or those who are thinking about doing God's will. Jesus' family is comprised of people who do God's will. And you can see the visible signs of their obedience. And most of the time, the the most visible sign is love. Johnny Erickson Tata says, always love is a choice. You come up against scores of opportunities every day to love or not to love. You encounter hundreds of small chances to please your friends and delight your Lord and encourage your family. And that's why love and obedience are intimately linked. You cannot have one without the other. To do the will of God and not love is simply a lie. You cannot do that. And what does it mean to love God? What does it mean to, to live with a spirit of love? And, and how, do we, how do we have that spirit? I suspect that more than anything, that kind of loving spirit to do the will of God, to live in obedience, maybe is just living your life with a desire to be close to Jesus. Now, let's not be naive. To do the will of God might well mean that we have to go against the wishes of our family. To do the will of God might mean that we have to say no to our family in order to say yes to Christ. And that's not an easy thing. 
Sometimes our family uh, opposes us because they can see that the decision we're making, even though we're saying it's the will of God, isn't the will of God. You know, we need to understand that that the, the, what we say might be God's personal will for us, his desires for us as individuals. It will never contradict God's general universal will. So when someone says, God told me to kill that person, we know God wouldn't do that. It doesn't match with God's universal will. It cannot be true. And sometimes our family can see that better than we can, and we need to listen to them. Sometimes our family can't understand the decisions we're making because the will of God as we see it isn't what they expect. And in those moments, we cannot acquiesce to our family instead of to God. This is the dilemma which Jesus finds himself as he teaches here in this home. His family, I think, is a little bit embarrassed about him. You know, it's fine if he wants to be holy. The miracles are great. But this unorthodox teaching and the run-ins with the religious leaders is not good. And they've come to take him home and to straighten him out. Now, you know, Jesus has a wonderful godly family. We've just come through Advent and Christmas. And, you know, we read the stories once again of Mary and Joseph. And they are amazing people of faith. There's people who, who... when God asks them to take some unconventional steps, do it. And that's what surprises me that now, 30 years later, they're finding it hard to, to see, when, to, to accept that God's doing the same thing, Mary with her little boy. And sometimes as, as parents, it's, it's hard to, to let our children go. And Mary, I think, is having a hard time seeing Jesus put himself in these difficult positions. But when push comes to shove, Jesus says, God first. Now, I don't think he's telling us you ought to disregard your family. I mean, one of the Ten Commandments is taking care of your parents. No one has more things to say about taking care of family than Jesus does. He often has words of condemnation for the religious leaders around him who do everything they can to get out of taking care of their family in the name of God. And it never ceases to amaze me that here is Jesus hanging on the cross, life ebbing out of his body, and he sees his mother and makes sure she's taken care of from the cross. If my family needs me, I drop what I'm doing to help them. They can come to me anytime, interrupt me anytime. But Jesus' family isn't there because they need him. They're there because they want to stop him, because they want to discourage him from doing what he's been sent to do. They want to prevent Jesus from carrying out the Father's mission. And Jesus is not going to let that happen. And the evil one brings all kinds of opposition against us. Sometimes the opposition is against us from forces that hate God and they want to destroy us. But sometimes it's from people who love us and and think they know what's best for us and just can't see what we see. I remember when I was in college and I went to a missions convention and 
I really sense God speaking to my heart about pledging $50 a month to support one of the missionaries. You know, it's a lot of money. I'm a college student. I don't have much. But I really sense that that's what God was leading me to do. So I filled out the little card and turned it in. My parents were, were running the convention, and I didn't talk to them about this, but they were going through the cards and saw that. They came and said to me, are you sure you want to do that? And, and in the course of the conversation, they, they talked me out of it. I said, you know, maybe try 20. A couple of months later, I knew that was the wrong decision to make. And I went back to what God had originally told me to do. And they apologized to me. Two people who have made a lot of risky decisions have stepped out in faith beyond what anybody would think was normal sometimes. But yet they couldn't see that when it came to me. And sometimes it's hard as parents to let go. To watch our people we love take risks, even spiritual risks. We care. We don't want to see people disappointed. We want to protect each other. And that's a good thing, but not if it gets in the will, the way of God's will. And it might appear as though Jesus' brothers and his mother are against him. I don't think so. I think they're there because they care about him. They're worried about him. They are afraid he's getting himself into something that is too big for him to handle. And they come not out of malice, but out of love. But even still, they're wrong. And Jesus will not allow anyone, including his family, to keep him from doing what the Father has called him to do. And sometimes doing the will of God means choosing him over family. We ought to do that with a sense of fear and trembling and and a great deal of humility and a great deal of respect for our family. But sometimes that's the choice we have to make. And that choice can be very risky. Madeline Lingle says if we refuse to take the risk of being vulnerable, we're already half dead. If you're half dead, you don't have to starve with the people of Ethiopia. You don't have to share the terrible living conditions of people struggling to exist on dwindling, inadequate social security payments in our overcrowded, hostile cities. You don't have to smell the stenches of filth and disease and hunger in the barrios. We're not all called to to El Salvador or Moscow or Calcutta or even the slums of New York. But none of us will escape the moment when we have to decide whether to withdraw and play it safe. Or to act on what we prayerfully believe is right. And when you act on what what you prayerfully believe is right, it's almost always going to involve risk. Obedience always involves stepping in. You can't stand on the outside and be obedient to Christ. You can't fiddle around on the edges and obey God's will. It involves going in, taking a risk. It's intriguing to me the the picture that Mark paints here of Jesus' family waiting outside versus the people who come in and sit at Jesus' feet. I don't think the house is too crowded for them to enter. 
We don't get the same description as we do at the beginning of chapter 2, where he says the house was so full, nobody could even get to the door, and so the guys have to go down through the roof. It's not that they can't come in. They don't want to come in. And there is something about them waiting on the outside that symbolizes their unwillingness to to step up and to step in and to take risk versus these people seated around Jesus who just want to be near him. Obedience to God is never, Christ, come to me. Follow my agenda. Be controlled by me. It's always come to Christ. Follow his agenda. Be controlled by him. It's always a risk of moving in. And we can take that risk because we're talking about family. We aren't obeying some arbitrary CEO. We're not obeying an arrogant leader or power-hungry deity. We're, We're coming and surrendering ourselves to the will of God, to our Creator, to our loving Heavenly Father. The one who wants only what is best for us, who's prepared a heavenly place for us, who sends His Son to die for us. It is to him that we are surrendering ourselves. And maybe one of the most amazing things about what Jesus says is that it's an invitation for all of us to come. I think one of the most profound words in all of Scripture is the word anyone, and it's twin or it's cousin, whoever. Human beings have a tendency to think about exclusiveness instead of inclusiveness. We're thinking about who who do we need to keep out instead of who can we let in? And how can we let more people in? And on this day, early in his ministry, as at a time when most people don't really understand all that well who he is and, and what he's come to do, he points to these uninformed, searching, learning people. These people who who are not all that steeped in the law, more than likely, probably don't have a great spiritual heritage, but want to be near Jesus. And he says, this is my family. And anyone, whoever wants to do the will of God can be a part of my family. It's not a call to people to be perfect. It's a call to people who simply want to be close to Jesus. I want to surrender to God. And it's not limited to people who understand enough, who have learned enough, who have experienced enough. It's simply for people who desire to do the will of God. And we might not understand all the deep intricacies of Christian theology, or we might not understand all the deep things, the difficult things of Scripture. We might still be struggling with habits that if people knew, we, it would embarrass us. We might wish that we control our tongues or control our tempers or or always love as an immediate reaction. And we might think that until we get all that stuff under control, you know, we sort of have to stay on the edges. But Jesus says, no, no, no. You come and be close to me and then we'll take care of that other stuff. That's what my family looks like. 
And as Jesus talks about anyone coming, I'm sure that the religious leaders are standing around thinking he doesn't know what he's talking about. It's for people who have measured up. It's for people who've got a heritage. It's for people who have the right standing. And Jesus says, no, it's for anyone who wants to come and surrender. You know, I I worry a little bit when I read this story. I worry that that maybe I might actually have a tendency to be more like Jesus' family or even like the religious leaders than this crowd seated around Jesus. My spiritual heritage is is long. If you could be born a Christian, I, I would have been. I don't know of a person in my family who's not a believer. I I was the 10th ordained minister in my family that was living. We used to joke when we go to family picnics that, you know, the only arguments we ever had was over which minister was going to pray before we ate. You know, if you could, if you, if you could get in with your spiritual heritage, I'd have it. And sometimes it worries me that I might want to rely on that instead of just coming to Jesus. Nobody has a corner on Christ. If you believe, if you follow Christ, if you yearn for Christ, if the desire of your heart is to do the will of God, even if you fall short sometimes, Jesus says, you're my family. So whatever gifts you have or don't have, whatever you know or you don't know, whatever your heritage is or isn't, Jesus says, come. Come. Come and do the will of my Father and know the joy and the blessing of my family. Heavenly Father, maybe for the first time we hear this invitation. Maybe for the thousandth time. But Father, today we want to be people who do the will of God because we want to be in your family. Give us courage to obey and to surrender and to risk and to love. Through Christ Jesus, amen.